Support for the Lincoln Project podcast comes from Odoo. If you feel like you're wasting time and money with your current business software, or just want to know what you could be missing, then you need to join the millions of other users who've switched to Odoo. Odoo is the affordable, all-in-one management software with a library of fully integrated business applications that help you get more done in less time for a fraction of the price. To learn more, visit odoo.com Lincoln. That's O-D-O-O dot com slash Lincoln. Odoo, modern management made simple. Hey guys, it's Reed. Before we get started, now is the time to get involved. We're almost to the end of the first quarter of 2023. We got nine months to build out the field army for the pro-democracy movement to make sure it's ready to fight in 2024. Go to jointheunion.us and sign up today. Sign up to do your part in the fight for our future. Jointheunion.us. And now, on with the show. Welcome back to The Lincoln Project. I'm your host, Reed Galen. Today, I'm once again joined by Dr. Steve Levitsky, Professor of Government and Latin American Studies at Harvard University, as well as the director of Harvard's David Rockefeller Center for Latin American Studies. His research focuses on democracy, authoritarianism, and political parties with a focus on Latin America. He's written an array of books, including How Democracies Die, which we at The Lincoln Project have cited on many occasions. His upcoming book, which is a follow-up to How Democracies Die, is called Tyranny of the Minority, Why American Democracy Reached the Breaking Point, which will be released this fall and is available for pre-order wherever fine books are sold. Today, he's joining us from just outside Boston, Massachusetts. Steve, thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me, Reed. So you and your co-author, when you wrote your first book, How Democracies Die, I guess you finished it 2017, came out 2018. We were about two years-ish into what I would call sort of the Trump epic of American politics. And so just to lay it out quickly and to give a little bit of a preview of your upcoming book, how do you see the evolution of the Republican Party you know, in those intervening years, because, you know, I got asked this question this morning, Steve, which is, well, aren't you guys at the Lincoln Project really just Democrats now? And I said, I used to be a Republican. I'm not a Democrat yet. I said, well, we are is pro-democracy and we only have one pro-democracy party left in this country. From our perspective, it's the Democratic Party and that's who we fight with. Has the Republican Party in your mind fully transitioned into the political wing of, author- of an authoritarian movement? Well, to take a couple of steps back, I think it's become a dangerously anti-democratic force. And that is not what we anticipated when we wrote How Democracies Die. When we wrote How Democracies Die in 2017, we did not consider the Republican Party to be an authoritarian party. We said that very explicitly. We considered Trump to be an authoritarian figure. I think we were right about that. And we blamed the Republicans for having nominated him, having essentially dropped the ball and failed to gatekeep and keep him out of the presidency. But we believe that the Republican establishment was still committed to playing by democratic rules and would draw a sort of red line that Trump wouldn't be able to cross. We thought in particular about the Senate. McCain was still alive. It It was a different party. And that changed much more quickly than we anticipated, much more thoroughly than we anticipated. I could never have imagined when we wrote the book in 2017 that the bulk of the Republican Party would acquiesce to Trump's electoral denialism in 2020, 
that the bump of the Republican Party would not line up forcefully to reject what happened on January 6th, to investigate it, to hold those responsible, accountable, et cetera. The degree to which the Republican Party trumpized and became, if not openly authoritarian, perfectly willing to cooperate with authoritarian behavior was stunning to us. And, you know, it's interesting because there have been all of these off ramps that we've seen. You talked about the 2016 Republican convention, when there were plenty of people who controlled the levers of the Republican National Committee, which is a private organization, right? It is not a for-profit organization. It is not a, an organization made up of the public. It is 168 members whose job is to determine who will be the Republican Party's presidential nominee. They could have figured out a way to short-circuit that. Republican leaders in mass could have said outright, and not just in the, in the wake of Access Hollywood and everything else, but even in the wake of his convention speech and his antics you know, throughout the 2016 campaign. We have never liked Hillary Clinton. We don't like her now. But let us say this. In this moment, Donald Trump can never become president of the United States. And they probably knew that was the right thing to do. But they also assumed, Steve, we all assumed he was going to lose anyway. So what difference did it make? And then, you know, we get into his presidency. And you see, once again, there are people who otherwise know better, right? Quote, unquote, normal Republicans, establishment Republicans, who, when given the option to stand and fight or acquiesce, as you say, acquiesce. And tell us about this, maybe in your history of not only this particular subject, but in the other things you've seen, like in your other book that you've got, Revolution and Dictatorship, how it seems to be so many of the things that people acquiesce on are not issues of great principle, but are really petty, short-term things that it's just easier to go along with than stand up for, because am I really going to stand up to everything this guy does because he's nuts? Yeah, that is part of what Daniel Zivlat and I in our forthcoming book call the banality of authoritarianism. In most cases, and certainly in the case of the United States, the extremists, the sort of openly authoritarian or openly violent forces are a pretty small minority. Unfortunately, we managed to elect an authoritarian president, but democracies only die or get into serious trouble when mainstream politicians make decisions that protect or defend or even advance the cause of authoritarianism because it's in their short-term political interest to do so. Politicians are trained to primarily think in terms of sort of winning the day politically. They think about preserving and advancing their political careers. That's what they do. And we political scientists sort of work under the assumption that politicians do that. But when that sort of very mundane advancement or protection of one's political career actually furthers the cause of authoritarianism, that's when these guys have to stand up like people like Jeff Flake and Liz Cheney did and say, hold on, pursuing my political career right now or doing the politically expedient thing now is going to threaten democracy, is going to threaten the rule of law, is going to threaten the Constitution. I'm not going to do it. And it's a lot to ask of a politician to stand up and put their career at risk or put their short-term political prospects at risk for the sake of democracy. But democracy can't survive if enough politicians don't actually do that. If everybody just says, eh, you know, for the sake of my career, we got to go along with Trump. If you do that, you end up where we ended up. There are about 
I'd say, 60 Republican members of the United States House who consider themselves Main Street Republicans, moderate Republicans, problem-solving Republicans, bipartisan Republicans. And of that group that is currently in Congress, only one of them voted in the wake of January 6th to impeach Donald Trump. Maybe two. Let me say two that are still in office. The other eight are gone. But these are the people who consider themselves the good guys. They're the people who say, oh, well, we worked on, you know, infrastructure with Democrats and we did this. Well, we voted to, you know, certify Biden's presidency, but then we turned around and voted no on Trump's impeachment. And to me, there is a litmus test and infrastructure ain't on it, Steve. Like, that's great. Like, that's fine. But the truth is, is like you don't get credit for stopping at the stop sign by doing the thing that you're morally, constitutionally, legally responsible to do, which is certify a legally elected president. Then you have a moral failure from my part, and it's either of commission or omission. I'm, I'm willing to decide which either one, which is when you know that this man should have no business whatsoever ever being involved in American politics again, and you decide because of your own primary election coming in the next year that you're not going to do it, that you've made a decision to line up on the wrong side. Right. And in just about every case of Democratic breakdown, you will find many, many, many mainstream politicians, well-intentioned, reasonable politicians, politicians who in private despised the rising autocrat, who may have worked behind the scenes to oppose the rising autocrat. But when the chips were down in public, were unwilling to take a riskier, unpopular position. There are times, unfortunately, when defending democracy requires taking a risk or taking a political hit. And it requires that the small D Democrats act collectively so they don't get singled out and destroyed the way, say, Jeff Flake did. But we can't require political heroism all the time from politicians. That's too big an ask. But there are moments in time where people have to stand up for the Constitution, stand up for democracy, and too few Republicans, even those who believed in it and worried about it in private, worried a lot about it, lost sleep over it in private, didn't do it when they had to. Right. And just to continue the off ramp, you know, subsequent to Trump's second impeachment, the trial, I have to believe, Steve, that if McConnell had said to 16 of his Republican colleagues, we're going to make sure this guy never returns again, they'd have done it. But at the end of the day, he didn't do it. Right. He voted against conviction. And then it went out and said it was Donald Trump's fault. Because at the end of the day, again, back to these short-term political things, he wanted to be majority leader again. And he knew that if he did this, it was probably the end of him and probably the end of his reign as you know, a leader in the United States Senate. And now here he is, you know, he's 82 years old and you know, he wants to be the good guy. So he goes and stands at a bridge with Joe Biden to stick it in the eye of Kevin McCarthy and Donald Trump. And I'm glad I guess he did that. But at the same time, the damage is done. Yeah, I mean, this obviously was a really difficult position for, let's call them mainstream Republicans. It was a difficult set of choices. It was a risky set of choices. Very, very often, even the better politicians try very hard to have it both ways, to sort of say the right thing, but then do something differently, or maybe say the wrong thing, but do the right thing in private. They, they try very hard to have it both ways. But these are moments when democracy is at risk, and clearly what happened between November 2020 and January 21 was a direct threat to U.S. democracy. When democracy is at risk, it is essential to be unambiguous. 
to have both feet in one camp, and obviously both feet in the in the Democratic camp. And the kind of trying to have it both ways that we saw with Lindsey Graham, to some extent with Kevin McCarthy, and particularly with Mitch McConnell, who really, really was troubled by Trump's behavior and really did want to see the end of Trump, but was unwilling to be as forceful and unambiguous as he could have been to put an end to Trumpism. Our team had a phone call this morning, Steve, and we were batting some ideas around and, you know, Trump is running for the Republican nomination again. It is our belief that he will ultimately probably prevail in that contest. But even before then, you know, you've got a guy like Ron DeSantis from Florida, Nikki Haley, Mike Pompeo, Mike Pence, all these other people. And we started going through the questions, which if we were political reporters, right, if we were going to put ourselves in these positions, that we would ask these candidates, not Trump, because we know where he stands on everything. He tells you, is, do you believe the 2020 election was free and fair? Do you believe that Joe Biden is the legally elected president? Do you believe the 2020 election was stolen from Donald Trump? Do you believe that January 6th was a violent insurrection? Yes or no? Do you believe it was an attempt by Donald Trump to overturn the results of that free and fair election? Do you believe if Trump is indicted, he deserves to be so, right? He deserves to face justice for the various things. And, you know, we're starting to go through these things. And the truth is, Steve, is that depending on the candidate, they'll either say 2020 was stolen. The truth is, though, is that most of them, to your point about trying to have it both ways, will tap dance around the issue. But to me, that in and of itself is a disqualification because we all know 2020 wasn't stolen from Trump. He lost it fair and square. But now you have these other would-be nominees of a party, right? One of the two major parties in this country who will not say because of their own political interests, right? They will not say Trump lost in 2020. Right. And that is an indicator of why we still face a threat to American democracy. I mean, it's very good news that Trump lost the election. It is very good news that Trump ultimately failed in his efforts to overturn the election. It's very good news that we elected a, uh, a small D Democratic administration. doesn't matter what party it is, as long as it's committed to democracy. And it's good news that it's very good news that the most rabid election deniers didn't win key positions in swing states in 2022. So we're better off than we were a couple of years ago. But the threat remains because the Republican Party has still not moved back into a position of unambiguous commitment to democratic rules of the game. As long as those who are seeking higher office, particularly people who are seeking the presidency, as long as they are unwilling to unambiguously defend democratic principles, as long as they either hide under the table, tap dance, as you put it, try to have it both ways, muddy the waters, refuse to unambiguously denounce anti-democratic behavior, the party will be at risk of authoritarianism and, and it's sending a, a mixed, unclear message to the American public. It's sending a mixed, unclear message to Republican voters and Republican activists, and that weakens our democracy. Let's talk about the voters for a second, because there are a lot of Republican voters who say, look, I've never been a Democrat. I'm not a Democrat. I vote Republican time and time and time again. Some are sucked into the Fox News vortex and that's its own thing. Some say, I have a fundamental difference in political or economic philosophy than the Democratic Party. 
and then you have what we see, you know, as the voters that we've targeted in 20 and in 2022, who are somewhere between 8% and 12% of the Republican electorate who say, like, I don't want anything to do with these people. Now, I might not be a Democrat. I might not even vote for the Democrat, but I want nothing to do with these people. But for that other almost 90%, Steve, of self-identified Republicans, in your research, and maybe it's not even the research for this book, but in your research across these kinds of authoritarian regimes, what makes them go along to get along when intellectually anyway, they should know it's wrong? Well, there are a mix of things. As you noted, there are a number of Republicans who are and who have been peeling off from the party over the last decade, particularly the last five years. Many of them are not voting. Others are call themselves independents. Some of them are beginning to vote Democrat. Partisan identity is a strong thing for at least a sector of the electorate on both sides. But I think particularly the Republican Party, partisan identities mean a lot. They've come to encompass a whole range of markers of who we are and where we stand in society. So there's a ton of research in political science that shows where partisan identities are deeply entrenched. You inherited a party identity from your parents. This is something that your whole family, your whole community shares. It takes a while, even if you are privately disconcerted, unhappy with the current leadership or the current party, the current candidate, you stick with it. It's almost like a team loyalty as much as a uh, party choice. So partisan identities erode only slowly. The other thing is that we are really polarized. And there's a lot of evidence that polarization reinforces partisan identities, and it leads to people making calculations like, I really don't like Donald Trump, and I hate what he tweets, and I hate what he does, and January 6th was awful, but Jesus, the Democrats are even worse. You know, Hillary Clinton was worse. Joe Biden was worse. They're going to bring socialism, and people are making that calculation. There's another group that is just very, very angry and very anxious and very fearful about where American society is going in terms of it becoming a much more diverse society, ethnically and culturally diverse society, in terms of racial hierarchies that have been challenged, you know, 200-year-old racial hierarchies that have been challenged in a serious way over the last 40 or 50 years in terms of cultural changes, secularization, role of women, and changing sexual identities. There's been a lot of change in the last 40, 50 years that has made a sector of the society very, very fearful about what is to come. That feels sort of an, an existential threat. That feels like the country that they grew up in is being taken away from them. And they're very angry. And they vote Trump more for who he's fighting against than for what he actually stands for. And that vote is strong. That's not a majority of Americans. It's probably not even a majority of Republicans, but it's enough to win primaries. Right. Well, and, and I think that's the one thing that you see in the Republican Party today is, you know, if you go to 2016, Trump wins unexpectedly. 2018, pretty significant wipeout for Republicans in the U.S. House elections and in the Senate. 2020, sort of things, you know, come a little closer to even, you know, maybe they don't like Trump, but they don't want to give Biden a blank check. In 2022, again, we win in the places, and I say we, the pro-democracy forces win where we absolutely must. But we're also, you know, the fact that you had the likes of Carrie Lake, Tudor Dixon, and Doug Mastriano in these target states, 
made it a much more doable thing to get those sort of soft Republicans and conservative-leaning independents to come across the line because they're such goons. Now, many of those same people, Steve, are talking about running for high office again in 2024. There's a Pennsylvania U.S. Senate race survey out by public policy polling, I think, has Doug Mastriano up 24 points on Dave McCormick, who's an otherwise, you know, very like Bush Romney type Republican. And then Kathy Barnett, who's the ultra MAGA of all, she's coming in at 11, right? She's already got double digits. You talk about Carrie Lake and the other idiot in Arizona. They're talking about both running for United States Senate. So it's like the GOP is in the thrall of this Trumpism, of this authoritarianism. But let me ask you this. Is that in some ways and I don't want to whistle past the graveyard here, is that in some ways a little bit of a light at the end of the tunnel that the monster is perhaps eating itself? I think depictions of the Republicans as sort of a cult-like party following Trump is not quite accurate. I think more accurate is to say there's a relatively small group of voters, what you might call MAGA voters, what I describe as sort of angry, fearful voters, voters who perceive themselves to face an existential threat. They vote in primaries. They're activists. And they're enough to win a Republican primary. And that compels just about every Republican to move in a MAGA direction. I think part of the answer with the polls that you pointed to is just probably name recognition at this stage. But Republicans are showing, with a, only a small number of exceptions, that state after state, the primary electorate is quite radical. And you need to be broadly Trumpist to win primaries. And so that's why you're seeing this strange logic. Now, are they consuming themselves? Yeah, there's some evidence, but a factor that will slow that process down is actually our electoral institutions. Our institutions are biased towards sparsely populated territories. The Electoral College is and the Senate is. That's not the Republicans doing. It's always been that way. It's never been a partisan issue in the past because both parties for 200 years had urban and rural wings. It's only in the 21st century. Again, it's not the Republicans' fault, but only in the 21st century, Republicans have been a primarily small-town party and the Democrats have been an urban party. That gives the Republicans, through no fault of their own, a leg up in the Senate and in the Electoral College. It allows them to win power without winning national majorities. They can basically come in with about 47% of the vote and have a, at least a coin flips chance at the presidency, as we saw with Trump, and a darn good chance to win the Senate. The Republicans can lose the popular vote by a good four or five points and win the presidency in the Senate. That is a disincentive to adapt to losing. When parties lose, like the Democrats did in 1980, 84, 88, parties that lose have to take a step back, rethink their platform, find some new candidates, and find a way to broaden their appeal, which is what the Democrats did under Bill Clinton, or what the Labor Party in Britain did under Tony Blair. When you lose, you rethink your platform, you get some new candidates, you put on a new face, and you seek a broader electorate. But when you can win without winning national majorities, when you can win with 47%, you don't necessarily have to do that. The Republicans had no business being anywhere near capturing the presidency in 2020, and yet they came within a few thousand votes, basically, of winning the presidency. They lost a popular vote by a lot, but because of the Electoral College, they almost won in spite of everything in 2020. And the Republicans, in spite of everything, are very, very likely to capture the Senate in 2024. They don't have to reform. They don't have to um, 
avoid horrible candidates and doing really stupid things in order to win. And so our institutions are serving as kind of a disincentive to adapt the way that a truly competitive electoral system would compel the Republicans to do. If the Republicans had really had to win 50 plus percent of the national electorate to win power, they would not be tolerating some of the craziness that they're tolerating. Right. And that's an interesting point because, you know, you go back to this past November, as I've mentioned to the listeners before, is that even given that, you know, there were a lot of places where Republicans thought that they were going to win, especially in the United States House, and they probably didn't think they were going to lose a third Senate race in Georgia in two years. But what you saw was that the, the Republican establishment was not mad at Trump and the MAGAs for being Trump and the MAGAs. They were upset because they cost them power. They weren't upset with any of the ugliness, any of the craziness, any of the illegality or anything else. They were upset because he cost them seats, which I think also says, frankly, a lot more about where the rest of the party, you know, even the quote unquote non-MAGA piece is. Yes. I mean, again, that's back to this issue of the banality of, of authoritarianism. The fact that most of the Republican Party is still thinking about Trump in terms of does he advance my political interest? Does he not advance my political interest? As a country, we're better off if the Republican establishment decides that they are politically better off without Trump than with Trump. But if they're only doing it because it costs them votes, this is a party that is not yet recommitted to democratic rules of the game. If they're not willing to throw Trump overboard because he's an authoritarian, not because he's a vote loser, then the Republicans aren't there yet. But let's take the ice cream that the Republican donor and establishment class is enjoying at the moment, which is a guy like Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, which to me is an aesthetic difference. It's not really a substantive difference, which is he's someone, now I'm, I'm not asking him in my house, but he's someone that they feel like they could have to their home or to their club or they could discuss supporting on the golf course and not be embarrassed about it. But that means you have to accept all those other things that he has been willing to say and do that are authoritarian in its own right. You know, he gets a lot of the attention about the wokeism and all the silliness. But, you know, the books, you know, the removal of, you know, leadership of higher education, the removal of local prosecutors, you know, the going after reenfranchised felons who have done their part in a specific way to scare off other reenfranchised felons from participating. Like, those are not pro-democratic acts either. No, no, no. I mean, DeSantis' behavior, more clearly maybe than any other Republican, even Trump, what is authoritarian about DeSantis is his willingness to use the machinery of government, to use the state to punish critics and opponents. That is fundamentally what authoritarians do and what we don't do in the United States. I mean, using the power of government to go after businesses that speak out against you, to engage in censorship, also to scare off voters. This is fundamentally authoritarian behavior. It's very different from Trump. And, you know, as you say, DeSantis can show up in certain cocktail parties that Trump can't show up in. DeSantis, there's certain things that DeSantis wouldn't do. He probably would not sort of outright deny the results of an election the way that Trump did. There were certain things that Trump did that really only Trump would do. But DeSantis's systematic use of the machinery of government to punish critics and rivals, that's Victor Orban. That's authoritarianism. Right. And yet the things that DeSantis does, he seems to want to walk that line between, you know, the plutocrats and the populists. And it's working now, but it'll be 
interesting to see. Remember that any primary election, but certainly a multi-candidate presidential primary, it's not a two-dimensional ballgame, right? It is a multi-dimensional fight that goes on 24-7. And just because DeSantis is quote-unquote in second place right now, doesn't mean there's a lot of people they're going to let him you know, just stay there. And certainly Trump won't either. But do you think that a competitive primary amongst this group of people, does that push all of them further and further into MAGA, into authoritarianism in a primary setting? It's very, very hard to predict the outcome of any primary, certainly a multi-candidate primary. So many different things can happen. But I think one dynamic that's pretty likely, I don't think there is a lane for moderates. I think we've seen that tried several times now, and that's failed. These guys will largely compete on the MAGA right. The MAGA electorate is too big to ignore. And she or he who captures the bulk of that electorate will be the Republican nominee. And DeSantis has his weaknesses, his vulnerabilities, not a particularly charismatic guy, but he's pretty smart in the sense that he has learned from Trump what the Republican base, what the Republican activist and primary base feeds on. And that is, again, punishing the other side, demonstrating that you can give the other side a punch in the gut. And he does that. Well, it's mostly symbolic. It's more symbolic than real. But at the end of the day, Republicans increasingly are giving their candidates a mandate to engage in bullying, sometimes violent, sometimes authoritarian behavior. And it seems to me that DeSantis's conclusion was that sort of behavior is what it takes to win a primary. And that doesn't suggest good things about where the Republican Party is today, because I think he's probably right. I think he probably is right. And if Trump didn't exist, maybe, you know, he'd be running away with it. But again, he's still got the face eating monster. He's got a face and Trump is the king until he's not. And then we've also seen, though, and, and Steve, maybe you've seen some of this research, too, that this is the other part of making a deal with the devil, which is there's a pretty significant piece of that base Republican vote that said if Trump were to lose a primary and were to decide to leave the party that they very well might leave with it. That's part of the deal with Trump. And we know this. And Republicans knew this from the very beginning, right? This guy has no loyalties. He has no partisan loyalties. It is all about him and his interests. There are lots of things I'm unwilling to predict about the future. But I'm very confident in saying that if Trump doesn't get his way, he doesn't give a crap about the fate of the Republican Party. He's perfectly happy to bring the whole party and whatever candidate the party nominates down with him. No, it was always an empty vessel right, that he occupied anyway, or an unattended vessel. Maybe that's a better way of putting it. Before we let you go, I want to talk about uh, another book that you've got out. It's a very easy read. It's a light read, Steve. And it's called Revolution and Dictatorship, The Violent Origins of Durable Authoritarianism. So I want to bring it to this. Is the United States in line for a violent origin of durable authoritarianism? No, fortunately not. That book is about why political systems that are born of violent revolution, like the Russian Revolution, the Chinese Revolution, the Cuban Revolution, the Vietnamese Revolution, why those revolutions always end up not only in dictatorships, but in very durable dictatorships, most of the time dictatorships that survive 50, 70, 80 years. The United States, fortunately, I think we're headed for some instability, some rough waters in the next 10 or 15 years, but I don't think that we are vulnerable to a violent revolution. I think that the U.S. state is strong enough and the two parties are strong enough that neither side is going to be able to wipe out the other one. So take us through a little bit about the book. So does the durability come because of fear? 
because whether or not it's state organs, suppression, whatever it is that people generally decide, you know what, I'm going to get in line and the whatever auspices of opposition are stamped out. I mean, is it that simple? The answer is yes, but that's somewhat down the line. Two things initially. First of all, in revolutions, revolutionaries tend to be pretty radical. They get to build their own army. A revolution only happens when the old army, the old state, the bureaucracy, the army, the police collapse. So what revolutionaries get to do, what Castro, what the Iranians, what the Chinese, what the Vietnamese, what the Russians, the Mexicans were all able to do was build their own army, one that was commanded and staffed from top to bottom by veterans of the Revolutionary War, people who are experienced in violence and are thoroughly committed to the revolution. That's critical. The other thing, and this is a slightly more complicated, revolutionaries, when they first come to power, tend to be nuts. They tend to be really radical. They want to change the world. They don't want to just stay in power, get reelected. They want to change the world. And they do crazy shit. They take people's property away. They ban religion or they impose a religion or they try to upend the regional geopolitical order or they take on superpowers like the United States. This is near suicidal behavior. And what it does is it almost invariably leads revolutionaries early in the revolution. It leads them to war, to civil war, to external war, sometimes both. The Cubans got the Bay of Pigs. The Russians got a civil war. The Chinese got sucked into multiple wars, including the Korean War. The Vietnamese fought the French and the Americans for 30 years. The Iranians got into a decade-long war with Iraq. Bloody wars. Occasionally, those wars end up destroying the revolution, like the Khmer Rouge in Cambodia. But if revolutionaries survive these wars, they build up really powerful, cohesive, coercive apparatus. That's where you get the police state that instills the fear that you were talking about. You're right that ultimately the durability is about a regime that can instill so much fear that people end up going along. But to get to that police state, you've got to build up a hell of a coercive apparatus. And that is a product of the wars that are triggered by the early radicalism. So there are a couple of steps. It's interesting because, you know, Fidel never really took the uniform off, right? I don't know if Putin fits into this because it's sort of a post-Soviet thing, but, you know, he'd probably still wear his colonel's uniform in the KGB if he thought he could get away with it. The Chinese, you know, it's the Chinese People Liberation Army. So let me ask you this, I guess I'm taking a long way around here to Steve, is can the fight for a revolutionary regime ever really end? It's a great question. Um, the durability that comes from a, a revolution is strongest while the revolutionary generation lives, the first 40 or 50 years, a violent revolution, then surviving the war that comes after, that gets you 40, 50 years, no problem. That's almost certain. When the revolutionary generation dies off, so the last gasp of the revolutionary generation, for example, in China was Deng Xiaoping and the crackdown in Tiananmen. That was the revolutionary generation that cracked down successfully on Tiananmen Square in 89. We're just seeing the end of the revolutionary generation in Iran and Cuba. In Cuba, it's passed with Fidel's passing. After that, it gets trickier. And there are a couple of paths that a, a regime can take. One is to continually make war and threats so that you're constantly facing an existential that, as you said, never take the uniform off. The North Koreans do that more than anyone else. The North Koreans are constantly pushing their state to the brink of war and existential threat in order to maintain that internal cohesion in that police state. But there are other paths. I mean, what the Chinese 
And the Vietnamese have done fundamentally is achieve steady economic growth. I mean, the primary reason why the Chinese regime has been so stable over the last 40 years since Tiananmen Square is a stellar economic performance. The people are relatively satisfied with the economic performance of the regime. Same in Vietnam. That's another path to stability. The fact that she is fairly militarist and aggressive has to do mainly with the fact that China is a great power and great powers do things like that. So there, after the first 40, 50 years, there are different paths. And I don't think the Iranians and the Cubans have figured out where they're going to go in that second 40 years. And I think that's why they're more vulnerable right now. Last question to bring this back to the United States. The United States was born of a violent revolution. Why didn't we collapse in a dictatorship? The easy way out of that is to tell you, and this is true, that it technically doesn't meet the criteria for a social revolution. It was a violent war of independence, but it's not a war that dismantled the old state. We were a settler colony and the institutions that the settlers built remained largely intact. And the revolution did not bring an overturning of existing class structures or culture or religion. It was a violent, successful independence struggle but it wasn't technically a revolution. But you're right. This is a, um, a violent ind independence war with certainly some characteristics of a revolution. We call it a revolution. That gave rise to a proto-democratic system. Would the civil war be closer to something like that? Because that did upset an existing social order. It did, but not permanently. And there are scholars much more informed than I have written about this, but what occurred in the South and the experiment with Reconstruction was arguably revolutionary. An effort in the 19th century to overturn the racial order, that was a violent revolutionary experiment. But it's one that failed, that was not consolidated. Well, you could say we were still dealing with it today. Yes. Unfortunately, yes. Well, Steve, before we let you get out of here, where can our listeners find your work? You can find my books wherever fine books are sold. Our book, Tyranny of the Minority, is already available by pre-order on Amazon. It'll be out in October and hope you read it. We look forward to it. We will have you back to discuss it. As always, gang, you can find me on Twitter and TikTok at Reed Galen on Instagram at Reed underscore Galen underscore LP. Steve Levitsky, thanks for joining me and everybody else. We'll see you next time. Thanks again to everyone for listening. Be sure to follow and subscribe to The Lincoln Project on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, or however you listen. Don't forget to leave a five-star review. To connect with us, follow us on Twitter, at Project Lincoln. And for more information on our movement, to join our mailing list, subscribe to our newsletter, or make a contribution to our efforts, visit lincolnproject.us. If you want to message the podcast directly, please send an email to podcast at lincolnproject.us. And if you want to personally join the fight to save our nation's democracy, visit jointheunion.us. For The Lincoln Project, I'm Reed Galen. I'll see you on the next episode. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. 
Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com slash balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality.